So, Brett Barnes, this is the first time you've given an interview since 1993. Is that right? That's correct. And is that 1993 interview the only interview you've ever given? Yeah, that'd be correct. So, why now? That's a very good question. And to tell you the truth, I don't really have an answer. It's something that I've wanted to do for a little while. Having the right outlet has definitely been an important part of that. And um, just the way that the media has uh, their spin on things, it's really important to have my version of the story or my story told on a proper forum for that. And I believe that this is the one. There's a lot of um, accusations made on Twitter that you are not Brett Barnes and that you're some <laughs> sort of imposter. <laughs> I can confirm that we did have a, a video call together to talk about recording this interview, and you definitely are you. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, and during that conversation, I said to you, is there anything that you don't want to talk about? And you said, no, no. you can ask me anything you like. Yeah. Correct? That's correct. Okay, great. Buckle up. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I want to see you! <laughs> I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm Charles Thompson, and you're joining me today for our 2022 Vindication Day episode, marking 17 years since Michael Jackson was acquitted after his trial in 2005. My guest today is Brett Barnes a longtime friend of Michael Jackson who was thrust into the spotlight in 2019 when a number of assertions were made about him in the TV show Leaving Neverland. He's chosen the MJ cast as the outlet for his first interview since 1993. So, Brett, I don't think there's much question that one of the factors in your decision to speak to us now is the impact that Leaving Neverland had three years ago when it was uh, aired, produced by Channel 4 on HBO. And there were some very strong insinuations in that TV show about you and about your relationship with Michael. So I just want to check, I just want to get on record with you, really. Mm. Did anybody involved in that production contact you to offer you the opportunity to reply to any of the insinuations? No in that show not at all before it aired not at all and did anybody contact you to forewarn you that it was going to be airing anywhere yeah other people that did were um, the fans from twitter so nobody from leaving neverland ever contacted you before it came out no what do you think of that it's very unfair it's very unfair i don't understand why because i guess the argument for them is that it's not really involving me but it is involving me because it's naming me, it's showing my image. Not only that, my name was used in promotion for for the uh, movie. And so without my opinion being involved in it, 
it's very unfair because it's a one-sided piece with no rebuttal. And after it aired at the, or after it premiered, I should say, at the Sundance Film Festival, mm-hmm. there was a lawyer called Alan Grodsky who mm-hmm. wrote a letter to HBO on your behalf. I'm just going to read an excerpt of that letter. Mm-hmm. So he said, as a result of the early screenings of the film and the false and exceedingly hurtful impression it leaves, Mr. Barnes has already suffered tremendous stress and emotional pain. Mm-hmm. Mr. Barnes and his family have received unwanted inquiries and visits from the press and strangers wanting to speak to him about Mr. Jackson. This pain and stress will be dwarfed by the torment he will have to endure if the film is broadcast worldwide. So can you tell us a bit about the unwanted inquiries that you received and the visits from the press and from strangers? What happened after Leaving Neverland aired at Sundance? I had numerous contacts from from the Australian press, really. The international press was handled. The inquiries were all sent to my to the lawyer. And so he would funnel them to me to let me know if there are any, any happening. So I had a bit of a barrier from the international press. But the Australian press definitely came to my house to uh, try to organise an interview. It was Channel 7, Channel 9 here. Both of them tried to contact me on social media as well. I'm offering the same sort of thing. But my... I have a very, very big distrust of media because of the way that they treat. They will take your words and twist them and, and have their viewpoint and their angle of the story. And so any any words that I would say would be taken out of context. I'm just very fearful of that. It's been demonstrated in in the way that they approached me. For There was a couple of, of specials that they were airing both of those channels uh, over here. And it was pitched to me to try and get me to do the interview as being a positive piece. But they used, um, in both of those shows, they, they said that some of the Jackson family members were involved to try and tell it to me to do the interview. Of course, I turned it down. But um, the specials that they aired were totally the opposite of that. So it's been, it's been demonstrated to me how untrustworthy the media is. So I really try not to be a part of it. So these would be the specials. I, I assume you're talking about the ones. That I remember there was an Australian special after Leaving Neverland debuted with um, Adrian McManus. Yeah, that's one. That's one of them. These are the specials that you're talking about. That's correct. Yeah. So they approached you and they told you that that was going to be a pro Michael Jackson special to try to get you to participate in it. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm sorry to jump. But when back when the trial was happening, and I was called to be a uh, witness, so this is the type of thing, this is the type of history that I, I've personally had. So a newspaper from over here came to my door. They knocked on the door, didn't know who it was. Opened the door, and there was a reporter there and a cameraman with a camera in my face. Now I'm just a regular human being. And so to have that happen is very, very, even my past being around uh, the press on that side of things has always been expected. But not for someone uh, away from that that life and the life I'm talking about is with um, Michael. So back here when I'm when I'm home, it's a completely private life, and so to have a, to open the front door to have a camera in your face is very confronting. Anyway, so they try. I'd close the door in their face, and they got my home phone number. Um, I was living with my parents at the time. Got the home phone number and were calling me relentlessly. They stayed out. They left the cameraman outside of my house for over an hour 
it's very uh, encroaching on my private life and I don't like that. And then they ended up spinning a story and they put a little article in the newspaper saying that I spoke to them, which I never did. It was just them harassing me over the phone. So there was another time even earlier when um, my dad my dad was uh, just in the, in the yard taking out the bins or something because it was bin night. And they um, tabloid magazine, they had a photographer in my neighbor's yard leaning over the fence, took a photo of my dad. Um, when he was taking the bins out and then they spun a story saying that he there was an exclusive interview with him. The way that they have conducted themselves has not made me very trustworthy to press. These approaches that you received on the doorstep after leaving Neverland aired, mm. how would you characterize them? Would you say that they were respectful? No. No. Okay, so talk me through that. Well they're very they're very pushy. They're relentless because it it's like they're hungry for blood. The person that came after after Sundance, the person that came to the door, because we have an intercom, so my wife answered, and um, she said it was a gentleman. He asked if Brett Barnes lived there, so she said no. So I haven't heard of that person. So she, he's like, are you sure? It's like, yeah, I've been living here for a couple of years. There's no one by that name living here. And um, so he's walked away, then he's come back. He says, well, Brett Barnes is listed on the electoral roll as living here. So they they were doing checks, which the, you can't check on the electoral roll. You have to go into wherever the, the uh, role is, is held to have a look at who's there. So you can't just be at home and checking up on it. So it's the lengths that they go to as well to try and get a story and to know then that the story that they're going to get isn't going to be putting me in a positive light is untrustworthy to say the least yeah and you know you just mentioned your wife who is involved mm -hmm. you know you have your own family mm -hmm. so how does it affect them when that happens because they don't have well i've got a very young young family so my oldest child is uh, almost going to be five so they don't understand they haven't they haven't had to go through too much because my youngest daughter was younger at the time. So she had no idea what was going on. But my wife, on the other hand, she is just from a normal family as well. So she, a regular family that isn't, they don't know anyone famous. So she's not used to it at all. And it's very confronting for her as well because it's such an invasion of privacy. To this day, has anybody involved in leaving neverland contacted you to offer you any kind of right of reply no no if they had would you have spoken to them that's a good question i'm very conflicted on that and that's the thing as well is that i would want to but is it the right platform for me to do it it would give credence to the movie because for whatever viewpoint, they have their perspective on the situation, let's say. So no matter what I would say, they've had the history of to not really care about me as an individual or what I have to say. And it's not going to go along with their story, which, which is obviously their own cash cow. It wouldn't benefit me or anything, I don't think, to be part of uh, whatever they have to produce. I'm just going to read you another line from the letter that your lawyer sent to HBO. Mm -hmm. 
It says, Mr. Barnes has conspicuously avoided the public eye Mm -hmm. and has not mentioned his friendship with Mr. Jackson to those close to him, Mm -hmm. his employer, his co-workers, and many close friends are totally unaware. Mm -hmm. Why have you kept the fact that you had this friendship with Michael Jackson, even from some of your close friends? Well, there's my close friends. I've got a very, very close circle of friends who I've been friends with for a very long time. There's like a circle of knowledge. So there's people within the circle that obviously know. So people that have been around for a long time. But there are, there are people who have come into my life later on. If they have any idea, then they haven't said anything to me. But for the most part, most people are unaware. It's not something that I've flaunted. Because of the way high school was a little bit rough for me. Because that's when the first allegations came out. Not only that, with people knowing that you know someone famous, especially on that level, people treat you differently, let's say. You can't really trust a lot of people that are around you. Because there's a lot of money to be made from knowing um, him and anything surrounded by him, any story cells which has been proven, any salacious story cells, should I say? And have you ever been offered money by the media to talk about Michael? The story that I mentioned about the photographer in the newspaper coming to my house—they offered me money for it, but there's not really been any any payment. Um, say the truth no one's ever really asked me to sell my story and i guess it's because it's not going to sell any stories for them it's not the viewpoint that they're going for and when people were waving money at you Mm. was there any suggestion that they wanted you to say anything in particular in order to earn that money you know if you've got something negative to say we've got some money for you or was it not that overt no it wasn't that overt Okay. So I think from what you've just said, essentially you're saying that you've been wary of mentioning your connection to Michael for two reasons. The first of which is that because of the allegations that were made, it became sort of embarrassing. And the second is that you are concerned that people could try to profit from their association with you. Yeah fake friends but I, I need to clarify that first point sure it's not the embarrassment of those allegations it's the ridicule that i received because of those allegations i've never been embarrassed to be friends with him and i never would be it's the ridicule i received because of those allegations if that makes more sense and are you talking about ridicule you know in your personal life or are you talking about ridicule in the media no, in my personal life. So what kind of ridicule? Uh, just, you know, kids can be mean. There was a lot of ridicule about that from um, in the schoolyard. Have you ever experienced people around you trying to profit from their association with you and your association with Michael? Um, no. No, we haven't. Not that I'm aware of. But I think it's because we have tended to keep a close circle. So like a lot of people in my life don't know. It's because we're not the type of people to flaunt anything. 
And so we keep those around us that we trust a lot more. Is that part of the reason that your Twitter account is kind of quasi-anonymous in the sense <laughs> that you never post any pictures of yourself or anything yep. like that because you're trying to keep a separation between Twitter Brett Barnes and real-world Brett Barnes? Well, it actually started. Okay, so I started it after he passed because I've got a profile on um, Facebook. So after he passed, a lot of people, a lot of fans requested friendship on Facebook. And so I didn't want to um, just ignore it, but I didn't want to add him on my personal Facebook. So I created a Facebook with that same original picture. And so that's when I started adding all the fans and then all the fans started adding on that. And then I branched out into Twitter and then Instagram, which I don't really use. So I'd say it's a evolution of the Facebook page for the fans to separate my personal life from that. I mean, you are frequently challenged by people on Twitter mm-hmm. to post a photograph or something to mm-hmm. prove that you are the real Brett Barnes <laughs> and you always refuse to do that. So why do you always refuse to do that? Because it'll put it's a privacy thing. I still want to maintain my privacy. So I think it's fair to say you've used your Twitter account over the years to try to set the record straight a bit mm. when things are reported that involve you mm. or you know, when Leaving Neverland came out, that kind of thing. But you've never given an in-depth interview of the kind that we're doing today. Mm. So why don't we just rewind to the very beginning Mm -hmm. of your story with Michael? Mm -hmm. So as I understand it, Michael was in Australia on the bad tour, Mm -hmm. and you as a fan and your mum and your sister went down to the airport Mm-hmm. You were too young to go to the concert, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a funny story about that. Uh, it was actually Tyler Marine. The, <laughs> this is the way the universe works sometimes. So I was at the airport. Do you want me to uh, – am I telling the story? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, tell, tell us the story. Sorry, because I'll add on to it as well from what I, um, what I told you. I was five years old. I've got an older sister, of course, and my mom. Uh, well, my whole family, really. We're all fans of, of him. And um, so he was coming down for the bad tour. So it was it was either my mom, my auntie, someone someone had suggested that we all go to the airport just to catch a glimpse of him off the plane, as fans around the world do, which I've seen multiple times. So it's funny. Yeah, so we went there to to see him, and mom came up with the idea of writing a letter, just as some chance that that he, it gets to him, which I've seen happened in later years as well. So my sister uh, wrote both of our letters, actually, because I was a bit shy to write. So I just said, like, hey, I'm Brad. Here's my phone number. Um, I'm a really big fan of yours. Give us a call, that sort of thing. We went to the airport, and so it was my mom, my sister, myself, my auntie, and my, my two cousins. We went to the airport to have a glance, and his dancers were up where all the fans were. The dancers for the show, so we handed it handed the letter to. Uh, it, it was Eddie that we handed the letter to. While we were there, this is the actual part. While we were there, the um, there was showbags, Pepsi showbags, because of course it was a Pepsi tour, so there were Pepsi showbags. And so in in the showbags, there was like cans of Pepsi, and I think there were, might have been like tour t shirts and stuff. But in random ones, there were show tickets. And so my sister, <laughs> my sister went and grabbed a couple of showbags, one for her, one for me. 
she brings them back. She gives me one of the bags. Inside my bag, there was a couple of, of the show tickets. But, um, of course, me being five, I wasn't, I was too young to go. So my mum, my mum and my auntie, I think, ended up going. Oh, that must have been gutting. <laughs> yeah, it was. But it's just <laughs> funny how me of all people ended up getting show tickets as well. Yeah, so then we saw him. He went on the, went, we were just like far away where all the fans were. And we saw him go from the plane to a van. And then that was that. And then a couple of weeks later, a week or so later, I uh, get a phone call at home. And my sister answered the phone. And I'm at the front plane. So I, was, I wasn't actually there when the phone rang. So this is all story being told to me. But apparently my sister answered the phone. Someone says, hi, can I speak to Brett, please? So she puts the phone down because I was outside playing. So I think my mum was there. She's like, who's on the phone? My sister's like, someone looking for Brett. Sounds like it's Michael Jackson. So mum <laughs> was shocked. So she picked up the phone and indeed it was. And so I went inside to talk to her, but I, I was a bit shy. So I didn't really say much on that first phone call. That's how the, that's how the friendship started. And you were five, did you say? Yeah, it was like 87, end of 87, start of 88. So what do you remember about that first phone call? Yeah, I don't actually remember much, unfortunately, because I was really, really, really shy. Like, I really didn't want to – I don't like being put on the spot, so even at a very young age. So I didn't really want to speak. So I just remember, like, my mum was holding me, so I remember just, like, kept turning my head every time that the phone was trying to be put to my ear. What happened then? So you have that first phone call. Yeah. And then how did things develop from there? He just kept calling and we kept talking. Sometimes it was uh, weekly. He just kept calling and keeping in touch, speaking to us all. Speaking to the whole family? Mm Mm-hmm. Even my cousins too. He would call my cousins. Oh, really? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah. I forgot to mention my cousins were there on that, that day too when he first called. They're girls, by the way. So they gave him their number, and so he called them as well. Did you ever find it strange? You know, he's the biggest, most famous celebrity in the history of the world. Yeah. And in his spare time, he rings you and your family. Did it ever seem weird to you? Because I was so, <laughs> because I was so young, I don't know if it ever really transferred that the person that I was seeing on TV was the same person that I was speaking to on the phone. So to me, he was just a regular person because it wasn't part of the the concerts and the video clips and stuff. So from the very start, he's just been a regular person to me. And it's probably why I got got such a a skewed perspective on life. What do you mean by a skewed perspective on life? Because I've been exposed to that side of things, like seeing going around the world, seeing the energy of the fans when the concert's going on. Just seeing the the mayhem of people everywhere, the adoration, just that side of life. And then coming back here to just be a regular person, going to school and just living a normal life. So you mean you have uh, like a a unique outlook? Very unique outlook. Yeah, most people have not (laughs) experienced what you've experienced. It's wild. It's wild. So you said he would talk to you and your sister and he would talk to your cousins who were girls. Did he talk to your parents also? Yeah, yeah, of course. And so essentially it was a friendship with the whole family. Yeah, the whole family. So was the first time you met him in person, would that be Mm -hmm. when you were invited to Neverland for the first time? Correct. So I think from 
court transcripts, that was in December 1991. Does that yes. sound right? Yeah. Okay, so tell us about that first. Well, tell us about the first time you actually clap eyes on him and meet him in person. Mm. How vividly do you remember that? Yeah, rule um to me it sort of plays out more like a movie like I'm watching the situation. It was yeah, it was really 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 cool. It was really cool. Cuz we've just been speaking for a long time over the phone and it was he was waiting to finish the dangerous album before we would fly out. Going to Neverland for the first time was was so amazing and, and it's funny because every single time that you go there that magic is just would still be there that same magic of being there for the first time but yeah because music is playing from when you first go with the gates music is everywhere just classical music disney soundtrack just playing everywhere so it's like a real experience and then um he was in his bedroom which is the whole house, the whole apartment within itself. And so the whole family went in because we actually, no, first off, we were in the, in the library. Uh, we had to go, we went in the library first. The library was really cool. Books everywhere, massive chess table. Yeah, then his manager came back. Uh, not his manager, his secretary, the assistant. She was the one that picked us up from the airport and um, took us to Neverland. She was like, yeah, Mr. Jackson's ready to see you now. So we all go in there. And I just ran up and hugged him. It was really cool. Just tell me more about that moment. So you you meet him for the first time. Is he bigger than you expect him to be? What's yeah. what's that like meeting Michael Jackson? Yeah, I was still a little kid, so he's he's obviously larger than life, but still like real frail. It's real funny. Frail. Yeah, well, not frail, but just because he was a lot skinnier than a lot of people. Frail's a really sorry. Frail's a really wrong word to use. Because he's still powerful, of course, because of the dancing. Like his body was just pure muscle, but there wasn't a lot of him. But for me, as I was saying, from a young age, it's, he's always been a regular person to me. So it wasn't so much as meeting Michael Jackson for the first time. It was first time meeting Applehead, if that makes sense. Applehead. So he told you that that was his nickname. It was everybody's nickname. I was Applehead. Actually, no, he called me Doodoo more, more so. <laughs> but uh, he was always he was always Applehead for me. And for most people, we would call him, like some people would call him Doodoo. For the most part, I called him Applehead. Is the, was there ever any explanation given as to the origins of these names? Because they are a bit, they're not flattering, you know, <laughs> Doodoo. <laughs> I mean, so where does that come from? The Doodoo, it was just... I've never actually got the explanation for it, but it's just something that something that we rolled with. I guess it's one of those things where it's like a um, cheeky way of showing um, love and appreciation. Like Australians are well known for it, so it makes total sense to me without having to understand it. Like we um, we call each other over here. We, we call each other the c word. We frequently use the c word, and it's a term of endearment for a lot of people. So I understand that aspect of it but applehead i, I know the origin of uh, well the, the way that he um told me was that it was um him and mac watching three stooges and i think it was mo called curly or said to both of them you appleheads and that sort of stuck from there and just to clarify mac presumably is macaulay colkin yeah okay 
So Neverland was a work in progress at that time. Mm. What do you remember being there and not being there in December 91? Um, some of the amusement rides, um, some of the animals weren't there. It's only from later. thing is, I never really, I've never really thought about like what was there and what wasn't. So the flower clock and the, and the train station, actually, yeah, they came later. The big train, yeah, because the big train wasn't there. It was only the little train. Were the animals there, did you say? Was there a zoo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were some animals, but some animals weren't there. Yeah, like there was a petting zoo that came later. The tigers came later. He uh, only had one elephant then, Gypsy. And so what were those first days at Neverland like? Did you get to spend a lot of time with Michael, or were you more left to your own devices on the property? No, he was waiting. As I said, he was waiting to finish Danger. So he could like have a lot of free time. So he he was around for most of it. And so what kind of stuff were you getting up to? It was arcade. The game house was the best. So it was just a, a house filled with arcade games. Like literally it was two-story building filled with arcade games, um, jukebox. There was um, fridges filled with sodas. There was candy everywhere. The movie, you went to the theater, watch movies. Of course, with the rides, it was wild. We stayed in. We were staying in the guest houses, and my sister and I were sleeping in the in one of them together, in separate beds. And so we went to bed the first night. Woke up the very next morning, and he comes into the room, and he's got a chimpanzee with him. <laughs> so this was the very first morning after we we got there. We were greeted in the room with a chimpanzee. Wild. <laughs> was it bubbles, or was it one no. of the other chimps? It was it was um, Max. Your bubbles wasn't there. In terms of your first visit there, I think you also didn't you go to other places. You went to Disneyland. You went to LA. You went to Vegas. Was that all during that first trip as well? Because I was so young as well, I can't. My memories didn't distinguish what places we went. We definitely went to those places, but I don't know if it was in that trip because I, from my memory, we were going across pretty often. Like for my grade five six. My years in school, grade five, grade six, I was actually only there for like half of them because we were going, like we went over on tour and uh, we're going back and forth to the States. And being inside Michael Jackson's private world, Mm -hmm. what impact does that have on you as a fan? Does Michael Jackson, the pop star, start to lose the mystique, yeah. does he start to become more of a human and less of a pop star? What, how does that relationship change? Like I said, from the very start, I was too young to differentiate between the person I was speaking to and, I mean, not too young to differentiate. It was differentiated. The person I was seeing on TV wasn't the same person I was speaking to. That was sort of two separate beings. So being uh, around him, there's moments where the pop star creeps in but for the most part he was just up with it and how does that happen when you say there's moments where the pop star creeps in mm. what would be an example obviously the concert so as soon as he stepped out on stage but like there'd be times where um we would go in like we'd go to toys r us but it would be shut after hours but they would open the store for us like the very first time we we're at the ranch we went to toys r us and he's like get whatever you want so we filled up a couple carts and then um, of toys. Sorry, I'm saying it real so blase, like it doesn't matter. But it it, it was amazing times. 
But for me, they're just um, sort of stories. Uh, please forgive me. So we filled out the couple cards and we get to the register. <laughs> I turned to my mom. And I was like, is it going to be able to afford all these toys? He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He's got it. So there was one time we were in Vegas and he's like, let's go get some candy. So Carly and I, my sister and I went with him to get some candy without real security or anything. We we're just going there. We, we did it a few times at different places, but it's all like a virus. One person will see and then all of a sudden everyone sees and you start off with like you, you think you're by yourself then you turn around there's a hundred people around so anyway it was a mad cry we we went to the shop and it's like you, you choose all your candies that you want and fill up a bag so we filled up i'd spent time choosing my favorite all the favorite candies that were there but then it got too mad too many people so we had to leave so we're running back to where we were staying like it was it was a a whole heap of people chasing us too. And um, as I'm running, so the bag shaking, and then the bottom of the bag falls out, and all my candy just spread out across the, across the car park. I was gutted. I was gutted. So saved what I could, but we had to keep running. So when I got back, I had what I could save. I was very disappointed. But so things like that, you'd see, that's what, that's what I mean by the star. The pop star would creep in. You're like, oh, yeah, this isn't a regular person. And when that would happen, hmm. Did you ever have moments where you just thought to yourself, how did I end up here? Oh, all the time. All the time. How do you deal with that? I mean, you were a young kid. Mm. It's a huge change in your life, mm. that sudden scrutiny and the restrictions that that imposes on your ability to just do what you want to do. Mm. Well, I wasn't really, I guess I wasn't really consciously thinking about it because to me, it was just always more living the moment. Like whether I was over there experiencing all that stuff or being over here living a regular life, it was just what was happening there and now. Were your family with you on these excursions? Yeah, for the most part, yeah, they were. How did they find it? I mean, particularly your parents, you know, were yeah. they ever worried about your safety or anything like that? No. Their biggest concern this is really weird. And see, that's the thing when I'm when I talk about this, like to to my wife, because she obviously wasn't a part of all of this. So to her, they're just stories. When I'm telling them, even though it's it happened to me, when I tell them, they just seem so wild. Their biggest concern about it all was that, like, I was missing too much school. That was their main concern. So when you went in December. 91 mm -hmm. how long do you think you were there that first time uh maybe a month yeah so that is quite a while were you there for christmas then yeah to say the truth i really can't remember i want to assume so and then you were going back fairly regularly mm. after that mm. did you have a tutor or anything like that or were you just missing school one of the tours we had a tutor family friend He's a teacher over here, so he came across uh, on the tour with us. I mean, did it catastrophically affect your schooling, or did you pretty much survive it? Yeah, survived it. It was, it was my later schooling years when my grades started failing. <laughs> <laughs> How come? What happened in the later years? Nah, I just really didn't. I got too bored at school. I didn't really enjoy school, so I did the very bare minimum. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not quite the dangerous tour, is it? No, not exactly. And I guess that's what that's what happened when I when I was saying that my my perspective on on life is a bit different, is a bit unique. 
my values that I place on things aren't on certain things. I should say they're a little bit different to what others do. It would be remiss of me not to ask you about the sleeping arrangements, given that the the intense scrutiny which has been focused on that mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you testified in two thousand and five, you said that it was during that first trip to Neverland that you first stayed in Michael's room. Mm-hmm. So. How did that end up happening? Well, it's not it's not something that I actually um, that I actually remember. Like I don't remember specifics about it. It's just something that always was. Thing is that he is, or he sorry, he was such a a magnet for all people. Like everyone just wanted to be around him all the time because that's just the type of person he was. So it just would have been that fact of just never wanting to leave his side because of the the power of him. Just everybody wanted to be around him twenty four seven. So it just would have evolved from that. Because the sleeping, the thing with the sleeping arrangements is that to me, it's never been something to concern myself with. I've never seen the problem with the sleeping arrangements because the focus has never been on the fact that it was just sleeping arrangements. It was just to sleep. There's, there's nothing. There was nothing more than that. And so, why so much focus on? It's just sleeping arrangements. It's just for sleep. I don't see why. If you're going with the understanding that nothing ever happened, why it can't be understood that it was just nothing but sleep? It was just to sleep. Well, I mean, clearly the issue for a lot of people is that there were allegations that were made. So people feel that there is cause to question whether it was just sleeping arrangements, which is why, you know, you've ended up in a a courtroom and so on. (laughs) I think the other thing that a lot of people find really difficult to understand, and I'd be Mm. interested to understand your perspective of it as a Mm. parent now yourself, Mm -hmm. is whether or why parents were not concerned by it, if you see what I mean. I, I mean, you you are now a parent. Mm. Would you find it concerning if one of your kids you discovered had been sleeping in a room with another adult? When it's put like that, that does sound concerning, but that's oversimplifying things. It's not a fact of later finding out about it, turning around and saying, oh, this happened. It's not that at all. It's hurtful for people to think that my parents wouldn't have seen something if something was off, even the slightest thing, if something was off, that they would let it happen for anybody, regardless of who it is, that they would stand aside and let something happen to their child. That, to me, is very hurtful to think that they would do that. So me being a parent, being in a situation where something happens, you had better believe that I'm going to to be a hundred percent on point having a look at the situation and making decisions off that. There's no way that I would put my child in harm's way or let anything happen to them. So for me, if I was in their situation and the exact same thing would have played out, I would have done exactly the same thing. And to, on that front, did they ever ask you any questions about it? I mean, particularly after the Chandler allegations of were made public, did they ever sit you down and ask of you course. questions about it? Of course they did, because they're parents. 
they're not going to let anything happen to me. Did other people sometimes stay in the room with you? Of course. It wasn't, it wasn't a, the door is closed, no one can come in. So who else would be there on occasion? Um, his cousins were around, friends were around, uh, my sister was there. That's another thing with me is that it's never been the focus of my memories because it's been such an insignificant part of it. Like, Who cares about sleeping? Do you remember all the times that you were sleeping? Do you remember? Do you remember your sleepy situations? All those times? No, because it's not. It's not the focus of what you, what you would think of, what memories you would want to keep. Yeah, and it must be. It sounds to me like it's frustrating to you that this has become essentially the focus. That essentially you had a long, a, a decades-long friendship with Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. but because of allegations that were made essentially they have been defined by something that to you was an irrelevance. So insignificant, so insignificant. And that's what it's boiled down to. The friendship was so much, so much more than that, than sleeping arrangements. Yeah, of course, you understand the reason I want to talk to you about it is because of the various allegations that have been made. I think it's important that you have the opportunity to actually answer those allegations. I'll park that there for a minute because Mm -hmm. we have gone slightly off topic. So talk to me a bit more about, so you go to Neverland the first time, but then Mm -hmm. I think when the Dangerous Tour starts in 92... Mm-hmm. You were on a lot of that tour, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so, well, that's a different experience to being at Neverland. So mm-hmm. when you're at Neverland with Michael, it's a fairly quiet, sedate experience, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. What's the difference when you go on tour with Michael? That's also more when the superstar uh, person comes out. The tours were hectic. There was a lot, a lot going on from. Um, traveling this is it's so like i really this is also why i hate talking about it is because it makes me sound so um i'm absolutely grateful for everything that that i've experienced i probably um come across as being full of myself or whatnot but that's definitely not the case so for me to tell these stories so flippantly sometimes is i don't know it might make me come across as a little bit uh, whatever but but I was just being a part of it all so again living in the moment so for me to say like all the chaos of just having to travel and stuff it's nothing to what others on the tour actually working and doing doing what they did uh, was definitely a lot harder than what I was experiencing but yeah it was just pure chaos fans everywhere you would go there would be people there the fans man They'd be there waiting for us at the, well, not for us, for him at the um, hotel when we were arriving into town. Then they'd be at the show, then they'd be at the hotel afterwards, then we'd be going to the next city. They're already there. And then going, like, you'd see the same fans, especially a group of fans that were that went over around um, Europe. You'd see them every show at the front, too. And you'd, um, it became a sort of game to try and spot them see where they're at because they weren't always necessarily in the same spot. So you'd have to um, 
but they would always be up at the front. So you'd always have to pick them out of the crowd. And so we ended up calling, especially one of them was Waldo from the Where's Waldo books. We call him Where's Wally here, but I didn't know what Where's Wally He knew it as Where's Waldo because of the states. So we ended up calling him Waldo. And then another one was there too in that group. So he was Waldo too. <laughs> you see the same group of fans every, every show at the front. So getting back to him as a person. So he would be Applehead off stage. But man, as soon as he went on stage, he was a different being. And just for most of the shows, I would come out on Heal, Heal the World when all the kids would come out after the, the big globe was getting, was inflated on stage. A bunch of kids would, from wherever we were at would come out. And um, I was always part of that too. You'd feel the energy coming off the off the crowd, man. It's something else to see. Just you, you, you're standing on the stage, and you just look out to a sea of people. And it was this was before mobile phones, of course. So people had um, cigarette lighters. So you'd see like it was almost like it was a um, galaxy, just, or just looking at the night sky, just all in front of you from all the flames and the, the crowds and all these people, and the energy coming off it. And it was something else. So you can see how how someone would be able to feed being up on stage would be able to feed off that energy to give to give every show the same amount of because to watch these shows were amazing so to be able to do it at night after night you can see how the energy of the crowd really pumps you up because it's something different so that's the things like i experienced all these things and then coming back home to to be a regular person it's a real contrast would you always be watching the shows from backstage or would you ever be out in the crowd watching them as a as a fan i never really set out because there was a sound stage in the middle of the if you see any photos or videos of the concerts there's a sound stage in the middle of the crowd that's where vips would sit so like my family would be always sitting there but i would always sit side stage at the back so if you were looking at the stage i was always in the back to the right it's uh shamedly probably really bad that i that i admit it but um so i'd be there night after night after night and then i started getting a bit remember i'm young back then but i started getting a bit bored so i and um they ended up setting up sonic the hedgehog sega genesis backstage and i'd be playing that <laughs> and then they'll call then heal the world would be coming on so they'd call me and then i'd get up and go on heal the world go back to playing sonic the hedgehog well, in fairness to you, I mean, Michael's shows were not known for their spontaneity. I mean, they were basically, everything was rehearsed. So once you'd seen the show, you'd seen it, you know. <laughs> you get so it's it. a bit like, it's like watching the same movie over and over and over again. <laughs> and but, man, I feel, I feel so bad. I feel so bad looking back and saying that now. Like, what an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the jam video. How did that come about? Um, I think it was just because we were around. It was coming up, so we thought it would be cool, and it it really was. I wasn't part of it. I was just there behind the scenes. Yeah. Mum and Carly were there too. We were just there as guests. Oh, I see. Is that the only time you were on set with him? Uh, no, I was, I was at the, um, the one with Slash that was filmed over in Europe. Give in to me given to me yeah i was there for that one too is it kind of i mean you know maybe it's not is it kind of boring being on a video shoot or is it actually exciting jam jam not so much because it was like yeah there was um naughty by nature were around crisscross were there obviously um heavy d came through there was jordan was there of course so there were that was pretty exciting to see 
but it is very repetitive. It's the same song being played the whole time, and it's not like the whole song will play because I'll cut and bring it back, cut, bring it back. So it's you're not hearing the complete thing all the time. So it's very, it can be very tedious and boring as an onlooker. But it was cool. Like looking back at it, it was really cool to have to see the process of it, to see how it was done, because you only know, see the finished product when you see it on TV. So to, to see how it was all it was all done was really cool. Like, that was a really cool experience. Oh, we also visited Ghost, the thing that, how it was filmed. It was supposed to be for Adam's family. Yeah. We were there at the original filming of it. Oh, wow. So we saw that part. So, yeah, yeah, that was cool. With Stan Winston. Yeah. This is kind of what I was guessing at earlier about the – sort of peering behind the curtain of Michael Jackson, the superstar. So mm. I think a music video probably looks very different when you were there watching it being filmed because you're mm. remembering the, you know, 20 hours you were stood around <laughs> in a cold room, you know, <laughs> bored or whatever. So it's, it doesn't quite look the same. Mm. So I guess over time, Michael becomes less of a, the, the mystique melts away and he becomes more of a person. Mm. In that time, I think from your 2005 testimony, it said that you traveled with Michael around South America, mm-hmm. North America, Africa, mm-hmm. Australia, and mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were on tour visiting these places, would you mm-hmm. get to see much of those places or would you, because of the circumstances you were traveling in, would you basically be car, hotel, car, hotel, you know, aeroplane. What? How much of the world were you seeing on these tours? Me personally, not so much because I'm not really that type of – and that's another one of those unfortunate things that I'm uh, – yes, yeah, so I was young and it wasn't – like I really could have – like my, my family would go out and they went and saw a lot of the stuff. But for me, it was – I just couldn't be bothered. I'd rather, I'm just the type of person that likes to even today stay at home and just relax. So that was, I could have done it, but I chose not to. That's what, as I'm saying, this this is why I don't like sharing these stories because it makes me look like a bit of an asshole sometimes, excuse my language. But I had the chance to go see the Sistine Chapel, but you can't wear hats in, in the chapel. So because I was always wearing a hat, I didn't want to take my hat off. So I was like, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to go. <laughs> Mind you, I'm, I'm like 11, I'm 11 or 12, so... It wasn't so spectacular to me, but that was my viewpoint. I don't want to take my hat off, so I'm not going to go see the Sistine Chapel. Some of the greatest works of art known to mankind. Don't want to take my hat off. Do you feel like the kind of the being in the Michael Jackson superstar world maybe turned you into a bit of a diva? <laughs> and that's what I, that's exactly what I'm coming across as, isn't it? I apologize. And please, <laughs> please believe me. This is not. This is. I'm not that type of person. I'm not that type of person. I'm, I, well, at least I believe I'm very humble, even though my, the way that I'm telling these stories does not come out that way. <laughs> Do you remember Bob Jones? Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote a book. And you were mentioned, as as is often the case with Michael mm-hmm. Jackson, you pop up in lots of places. So he mm-hmm. wrote in his book that you used to be, when you were on tour with Michael, you would be smuggled around in suitcases so that the press would not know you were uh, with Michael. Was that true? Yeah. <laughs> Did he put that? Yeah, yeah, he said that, yeah. Why would I be in a suitcase? 
Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you why you were in a suitcase. I've never been in a suitcase. I wouldn't. I would not even. I'm not claustrophobic, but being in a suitcase is not something that I would want to do. Okay. Well, I suspected you might say that, but I just wanted to again in a suitcase. You've not given an interview since 93, so there's been a lot of stuff said about you which you've not had the opportunity to comment on. So well, so it would it would be untrue for Bob Jonas to say that you were smuggled in suitcases. Absolutely. absolutely. Okay. And did you ever, on as far as um, addressing things that have been claimed, I'm mm. just thinking back to leaving Neverland and mm. the stories that they tell about being on tour with Michael. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel that there was any effort by Michael or those around Michael to separate you from your family? No, not at all. I never experienced that. There was never any time where if I wanted to see my family, I wasn't able to. There was never any time. They were always accessible to not only me, to him as well. It's not like I was locked away or anything like that at all, at all. And you never saw that happening to anyone else? No, not at all. Now, it was right in the middle of this time, it was in the middle of the Dangerous Tour, that Neverland was raided. Uh And it has been published in the past that you were actually at Neverland when it was raided. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Wow. Okay, so... What do you remember about that? Again, I was young at the time, so it's not anything, like nothing profound really I remember about it. To me, it was just an annoyance because I I wasn't um, able to carry about my day because I remember, I think it was the sheriffs. One of them obviously wanted to interview me to see if it was, if it was, um, see, to obviously to do an interview, make sure nothing's going on. So I remember having to sit down with him and him just asking questions, but it was just taking up my time. I wanted to go just enjoy life. What do you remember about your interaction with that officer? Was it polite? Yeah, he was real polite. Okay, so you didn't have a problem? No, no. He was just asking questions, and it wasn't like he was he was threatening or he wasn't intimidating. I, I seem to remember sitting down, like we were both sitting down. He was just sitting next to me asking these questions. Like it was real relaxed and as I guess you would treat a child that's that's potentially been in that, having something happen to them. Was it frightening seeing all those police all over the ranch? I don't remember it being, but I'm going to assume that it's because there was always people around, whether it be gardeners, workers, maids, there was always security. There was always, like, people in uniforms were around all the time. So to me, it's nothing that really stood out. It's not like they were, like, I don't rem- I don't recall there being any rough housing or anything like that. Like, nothing stands out in my mind, in my memories about it. But from what I remember, it was just, as I said, more so, like, I couldn't go do certain things because they were doing whatever they were doing. So it was just more of a hindrance to me rather than anything scary. And did you understand why they were there? Did you understand what it was that they were investigating? Not, I didn't really understand the concept of what the allegations were. It was just more so like Abbott had been told that he'd done some, that there was some bad things that said about him. That is pretty much the extent of it. Do you remember how and when you did come to understand what was actually being alleged? Uh, well, it was a little bit later. It was more so the impact of, of everything surrounding it. Like the understanding of the physical act of was anything appropriate happening, that I understood that 
there's things that shouldn't happen, right? Like, so when the cop was, when the sheriff was asking me all those questions, like I understood that those, that there's certain things that shouldn't be happening, be taking place. But to understand the impact of that came at a, at a later stage, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you say that after that raid mm-hmm. and when these allegations, you know, became known, your parents did sit down with you also mm-hmm. and talk to you and ask you questions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So did you know Jordan Chandler? Yeah, he uh, he was around a little bit. Did you understand at that time that he was at the center of all this? Yeah. What was your opinion of that? I couldn't understand why. It was a lot of confusion as to why. Because of the fact of, as I said, my understanding of Applehead being accused of something so bad, so it was a little bit hurtful that he was accused of doing something bad at that at that point in time. It was just, yeah, it was confusion. At that time, I think when the raid happened, Michael was not on the ranch. No. But you were on the ranch. Yeah, Mum and Carly were there too. When did you next see Michael? Because of everything was, um, for lack of a better term, heating up, we um, decided, um, well, I didn't decide anything, of course, I was only a kid. Mum and Dad, I think, decided that we shouldn't come back home because everything was sort of getting a little bit out, not out of control, but interest in us, let's say. It was pretty high, so we ended up staying over. We went to, like, Hawaii, went to Disney World. Dad came over as well. And so we were, like, away for a little while after a couple months. And then next time we saw him, to the truth, I can't really remember. Might have been um, back on tour. So maybe on that second leg, because yeah. when so he flew out of the country and then Neverland was raided a couple of days later. And yeah. I think that was actually the South American leg. Yeah. So if you were traveling around South America with him, yeah. it must have been then. Because yeah. I think 93, he did Chile, he did yeah. Mexico. Yeah, we were definitely there. Did you observe how he was being affected by this investigation and these allegations? It's Again, it's not something that was significant enough for me to remember that it was. He would just, I, I assume, would just keep it away, not let it consume him. So it was not really, in the, and again, since I was young too, so it's not something that um, we would have any deep discussions about other than him saying he doesn't know, like he didn't know why it was happening, just didn't understand why it was. Did he seem different to you, though? Did he seem depressed or or withdrawn, or did you not really notice any difference in his demeanor? I was pretty young. Hmm. If I had to make a guess on my memories around that time, I would say that it was a little bit like looking back on those memories. It was there was a little bit of that energy gone, if that sort of makes sense. Amid that whole, because I've I said at the beginning of this conversation that the only interview you've ever given was in 1993, mm. and that was in response to these allegations, and it was you and Wade Robson together. Mm-hmm. How did that interview come about? I don't remember. We didn't do the video. We didn't do the uh, interview at the same time. Oh, I see. So it was you were interviewed separately, but yeah. for the same thing. So, yeah. Did you know Wade at that time? 
we had met him and his mum at the jam video. Now, just for the record, I've got some questions about that interview that you did in 93. Mm-hmm. I want to give you the opportunity to put your answers on record. Mm-hmm. Did you do it voluntarily? So I don't really remember the uh, ins and outs of it. And to tell you the truth, it's understandable in my opinion because of the thing, these, these sort of things, I guess it's hard for me to, to be asked these questions because these type of things aren't significant to me because it's not what my life, it's not things that as an adult, it would, they would be things that I would be remembering or have committed to memory. But as a child, these aren't really things that I would commit to memory because look at the, look at the things I was doing at that time. The amount of amazing things I've seen in my life, these are the things that I've committed to memory rather than uh, caring about being at Neverland when it was raided. Things like that just aren't committed to memory for me. Okay. And I'm sorry, I forgot what you asked. Did you do it voluntarily? That's right. Sorry. <laughs> I went completely off topic. I don't remember I don't remember the ins and outs of it, but I know I wouldn't have done something. I wouldn't have been able to be forced to do something I didn't want to do. That's still true to this day. Did Michael in any way coach you or tell you what to say? I don't even think that he he definitely wasn't there when we record when we did it. It was Mum Carly, I think, was there and myself. But he wasn't there. He wasn't there when it was recorded. Did anybody else coach you or tell you what to say? No, of course not. All it was was just answer these questions, tell the truth. That's all it was. Were you paid or induced in any other way to do the interview? No. If I was paid, I definitely didn't see the money. Okay. And were you telling the truth in the interview? Absolutely. Okay. So at the time, the media started flying around with checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars and giving them to people who had some connection with Michael Jackson Mm. in return for stories that were negative. Mm. And a number of people accepted that money. And when they told those stories, they used your name in those stories. And I want to give you the opportunity to comment to explicitly say what you think of these claims that were made. So there was a security guard who sold a story saying that he saw Michael Jackson performing oral sex on you in a Neverland changing room. Did that ever happen? No, of course not. That's absolutely disgusting. If dude saw that, why didn't he do anything at that time? Why didn't he go to the police? Why didn't, why wasn't there anything? So you're going to see something like this happen and then that's, you're just going to walk away from that. So you refute that story completely? Absolutely. There was a maid called Adria McManus, who I know you're aware of, who said that she saw Michael put his hand on your butt and kiss you on the cheek. Is it possible that that ever happened? No, I don't think that would have happened at all. There was um, a guy called Victor Gutierrez who published a source of erotic novel about Michael, Mm. which he claimed was based on the secret diary of Jordan Chandler, Mm. although the Chandlers denied having anything to do with Gutierrez. Mm. He, in quite graphic terms, described you, Michael, and Jordan Chandler engaging in group sex together. Is that true? That's not true at all. That's gross and disgusting. Isn't this the same dude that 
run off without paying what he was expected to. That's him. Yeah, yeah. That's him, yeah. Did he ever contact you before publishing that book? Not that I'm aware of. Do you recall anyone contacting you to ask you whether Adrian McManus's story was true before publishing it or broadcasting it? No, not that I'm aware of. And the security guard story, do you recall anybody calling to ask you whether that was true? No, no, not that I'm aware of. It was reported sometime after the Chandler settlement that Snedden had either personally travelled to Australia or had sent somebody else to Australia on his behalf mm-hmm. to try to convince other children to make allegations. Mm-hmm. And it has been reported in the past that your family mm-hmm. was approached during that trip. Do you remember that happening? Uh, yeah, I remember that to a certain detail. Was it Snedden or was it someone else? I believe it was him because my mum has... Um, you know, Stories will come up every so often, different aspects of, of our experiences during family gatherings. And so, like, them coming over has been brought up before, and, and I remember her saying he was definitely there. Because I didn't, at that time, I didn't really, I wasn't, I didn't speak to him, because it was him, it was someone else. Mum said it was a reporter, but it might not have been. And there was a couple of sheriffs, I, I believe. And she said that they said to not say that they were there that they had come, if anyone asked that they hadn't come. But yeah, he was definitely there. So they, because they had asked to speak to me, but mum and dad said no, not to speak to me, but for them to speak to, to mum and dad. We played in the um, neighbourhood park while they were there. Because we'd come back from somewhere. I remember we'd come back from somewhere and there was this car that was out parked out at the front of our place. And then as we arrived, they got out of their car and came up to us. So mum was like, go play while we speak to these people. Oh, I see. So you didn't have any face-to-face interaction with them. You just are aware that that happened. Yeah, correct. But you had already told the sheriff at the ranch that nothing had happened to you. Yeah, correct. Now, you know, I've just asked you some pretty horrible questions, really. I mean, I would find it horrible to have somebody ask me these questions. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, the fact that the stories have been placed into the public domain means that really, Mm -hmm. especially since the people that published them never gave you the opportunity to comment on them. Mm -hmm. So I I would like to know from you how it feels to know that those stories are out there now. How does it feel to be Brett Barnes and know that people can Google your name and that stuff comes up? This is, what does that do to you? This is part of the reason why a lot of people don't know. Because to me, it's what, what you've got to understand from my viewpoint is so nothing ever happened to me. I'm categorically, absolutely nothing, 100%, nothing has ever, bad has ever happened to me. So from my viewpoint, for these things to be said about me that has happened to me, it's shameful because these things never happened to me. So that's just the personal aspect of it for me, how I feel. That anyone can Google my name and these are the first things that come up about me. So there's that aspect of it. But then there's also my parents that have to deal with this, that it's their son that this is being talked about. But then, as I said before, how they're, they're viewed upon as parents to have apparently seen things going on but just let it go to the side just just for the sake of being around a famous person just for clout and then you got my sister who has to live through this as well so her brother's getting say that people are saying these things about him and then her as a sister has to what she has to deal with with these sort of things but then you got my grandparents 
this is their grandchild that, that these things are being said about. And it goes on and on and on. Yeah. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I mean, it's, it's difficult to imagine any remedy now. There's no way of unringing that bell, if you know what I mean. So how do you cope with it? How do you live with it? Um, sorry, give you a second. Sure. Keep your life separate. That's how you deal with it. Maintain your privacy. Okay, I'm going to move on from this subject for the time being. Did your relationship change with him in any way after the um, the Chandler thing, or did you basically have ongoing contact? Because it would have been very easy for him to take advice from someone mm. to just stop hanging around with kids or Absolutely. reduce his contact with kids or whatever. So did you notice any change in your relationship with him or not? Not really. Like our friendship never stopped. It never it never quietened down. We never grew distant. It was always it was, well to me at least it was always the same. I never felt a change. In two thousand and five, you actually said that you basically continue to visit Michael and spend time with him. You know, roughly speaking, once a year mm-hmm. until the two thousands. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty consistent relationship. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, nothing ever changed. From the time I was five years old up until he passed, nothing ever changed. I think that's important because there is a narrative which has been built up, which is that he kind of befriended kids and then when they got to a certain age, he lost interest in them or ditched them or replaced them or whatever. But that doesn't seem to have been the case with you and your family. So it kind of is, uh, it kind of disproves that narrative. Mm. As you got older, did your friendship change in terms of, not in terms of, you know, frequency of seeing him or anything like that, but Mm. in terms of the content of your conversations or, or was it still just goofing around the dynamic of the friendship? Yeah, exactly. How did that evolve over time? One of the things that he instilled in me or, or one of my, um, one of my core beliefs is to stay young at heart. Um, never lose a child within you. So even as I've grown up, there's still a lot of goofing around. Um, so there is definitely that aspect that remains the same. So so a lot of the childhood antics, playing pranks, telling jokes, all of that stuff, the goofiness was always, always, always present. But as I grew and matured, there were a lot more mature conversations happening. So, uh, like, he would tell me more about the business side of things that he was doing, just give me, like, little insights into that, things that he was working on. We would have music conversations. Yeah, it was just, as I grew and matured, there were definitely were more. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it. Just, love it. just the, that more of a friendship, as with all, it's it's really weird. It's the same progression as as... Because uh, I've got friends, like part of my inner circle are, are two two friends of mine that I've been friends with since 94, so year seven of high school. So it's the same sort of maturity as I've, I've had with them. It's the exact same type of friendship. As you got older, did you ever worry about Michael in the sense that he seemed like, and even spoke about actually, 
being lonely and isolated by his fame. And he, in interviews, he often didn't sound as if he really enjoyed being famous. As you got older and the pop star mystique faded away, did you ever worry about him? Not really feel, not really worried about him because it was never, there was never anything that I um, saw would give me cause to worry. It was just more of a feeling of sadness more so that he couldn't experience the normalcy of life as what we experience. Uh, that he can't, like we couldn't go anywhere, like nowhere. He can't go down, oh, I, I need something, I've got to go down to the shops, can't do it. You need to. You need to organize. You need to pre-plan it. You need to have secret service <laughs> style style um, itinerary of just going down the shops. Uh, like it was just more sadness that he couldn't experience those things. That he that there was such a microscope on his life as well. That you just can't experience a normal life. Yeah, I mean, it kind of felt as he entered the the 2000s that it was almost sort of emanating a sense of like i'm really over this now mm. i'm kind of sick of it to me that wasn't not that wasn't so much of the i don't put that down to the success to the fame side of things that there was definitely a little bit of light lost in his eyes to use that sort of phrase what was said about him affected him more so did you ever feel, because he testified in 2005 or 2006 that he did end up essentially with a painkiller dependency. Mm. Do you think that might be what you were seeing when you talk about the light, a loss of light? Do you think he was kind of dulled by medication know. or do you think it was more of an emotional thing? I would say that it's more of an emotional thing. I was never around I was never privy to any of the painkiller medication. I never saw him take painkillers or anything like that. So that part that part of his life, I was never aware of. I was never really aware of or party to. So I can't comment on that side of things. But from my perspective would be that if there was that dependency and that was um, the light that was dimming, it was because of the whole thing. The root of it all is exactly the same. Either way. And when you say the light was dimming, how did that manifest itself? Was it like he didn't want to do stuff or he seemed groggy? What What are you referring to when you say that? It's not that he seemed groggy or anything like that. There was no physical, there was nothing like that that I would say. It's just the accusations, the way he was accused of and the way that it was presented in the media, that has the ability if that happened to anyone that has the ability to to break a person so it would be the the impacts of that when you when you see a person and how, how they act the the lack of light in the eye is more so to say that his the energy that you saw beforehand the the carefreeness the um, sense of adventure the, these type of acts, aspects were just dull, dulled down a little bit. So was it less fun being around him at that point? To say that is a little bit dismissive. Mm. To say it as a quantifiable measure, to say that at one point it was this high and then it's a little less now than yet, 
that would be. That's not to say that it was devoid of fun. It was just the energy levels weren't just, weren't the same. I wonder if there was an impact in the sense of him. It must be difficult to face the world knowing that the world knows that this has been accused of you. So maybe that kind of made him more reticent to engage with the world because he kind of knew that this was hanging over him. Did you get that sense? I can only say what it was like when I was there, obviously. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not like there was ever any talks of, I need to go do this. I need to put out another album. I need to go uh, do another tour. There was, oh, but I don't really feel like doing it. There, I don't really want to face the world. We never had these type of conversations. It's not the type of things that we would talk about. So, it's not to say that he didn't. He just. It was more so like how I say the goofing off of things sort of was toned down a little bit. Like there was another sort of marker that I noticed as well is that after Neverland got raided, he was a little bit um, like his, his privacy obviously was invaded. And just like anyone feel, uh, our family has got broken into many years back, but it's still, I remember, I'll never forget that fear of invasion of privacy. So to have that same sort of thing happen at the house, you look at the house a little bit different. So for him, Neverland was, was a little bit, his his feeling about Neverland had, had changed as well after the, it had all happened because his privacy was invaded. So it's the same sort of thing that I feel. Um, and as I said, I can only talk about my experiences, but as I feel his, um, like it, it definitely hurt him, what was accused and what was said about him. And I think that that's something that people don't understand because they're only seeing the presented side of him and not him as a person. So for him to still carry on and do shows while all this is going on, to perform at such an elite level, night after night, to keep doing it, to keep this all, all going, is definitely a um, testament to, to him. And what effect did um, fatherhood seem to have on him? Yeah, he, that, was, that was really cool to see. That was really cool to see. Man, he, yeah, he was a great father. He loved his children. He loved his children. Yeah, that was, a really, that was a really cool thing to say. Now, clearly, around this time, around the early 2000s, there is a second set of allegations which result in you going to the trial mm. to testify, which results in another round of intrusion into your life. Mm-hmm. Were you asked to come and testify, or did you volunteer to come and testify? We... um because it was Mum and Carly as well. Mm-hmm. We were asked if we wanted to. So we had the choice. I didn't have to go testify. So we chose to. And you were 23 years old when you testified. Yep. You told the jury. So I think the first thing you told them, because Mr. Mesero asked you the question, mm. was that you had actually quit your job mm-hmm. as a roulette dealer to come to Santa Maria to testify. Mm-hmm. Why did you have to quit your job to come to Santa Maria? They, it, they wouldn't let me take time off to do it. So it was more important to me to do it. I was able to find employment afterwards, which wasn't too bad. That wasn't a concern of mine at all. Would that mean essentially, though, that you did actually incur a financial loss as a result 
of going to Santa Maria to testify. Yeah. Yeah. So presumably you were not paid to testify. No. So you quit your job and took a financial hit to go and testify at the trial. Of course. I don't see why. I would think anyone would do that. And I'm not going to rehearse your entire testimony because you've said quite forcefully earlier in this conversation that nothing inappropriate ever happened between you and Michael. Mm -hmm. So just to uh, encapsulate it in one question, really, there's nothing about your testimony that you wish to revise or change on that front. Uh, Every answer you gave, you stand by now. Sure. Yep, I do. I will just ask you a couple of questions in response to stuff that's said in Leaving Neverland, mm. just because uh, I think we need to give you the opportunity to give explicit, unequivocal answers to these questions. Mm-hmm. Did anybody try to coach you about what to say on the stand? No. Did Michael try to coach you about what to say on the stand? No. Did he threaten you Absolutely in order to not. get you to testify? <laughs> No. Did anybody else threaten you? No, Did no, they no. threaten you with perjury no. or anything like that? No. Threaten you with legal action? No. Some of the former employees mm. who I mentioned earlier did come to court and repeat the stories that they had been paid for 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So your position remains that those former employees were not telling the truth when they testified at the trial. Absolutely. You had already told the prosecutors that those stories were lies. Mm -hmm. And nobody, well, you sorry, you told the sheriffs that nothing had ever happened to you, that Mm -hmm. those stories were lies. Mm -hmm. Did anybody from the prosecution ever contact you and ask you whether those stories were true before deciding to call those witnesses? No. What do you think of that? That's very... That's very strange. If it, It's the same thing as I don't understand why. The movie, there was no rebuttal. If you want to tell the complete story, why wouldn't you? Why, if you're wanting to tell a story, why wouldn't you want to include the, the complete story? Obviously, well, I would not. Obviously, I would like to think that me being named or a part of your version of the story, shouldn't I be included in that? Shouldn't my voice be included in that? I don't know. I would. I would think that that's that's how I would have handled it, unless it's not going along with my viewpoint. Then of course I wouldn't want to include it. The reason you were called to testify, or you were asked if you would like to testify, is specifically because the prosecution had called these witnesses to say that they had seen things happening to you. So in, mm. in essence. Is the prosecution's decision to call those witnesses which made your testimony relevant. If nobody had come to court and said that this had happened, Mm. then there would not have been any reason for you to come to court and say that it didn't. Mm. So in that sense, I would imagine it would be quite aggravating that the prosecution would call these witnesses and not even bother to actually ask you whether the stories were true or not. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really bad um that's a that's a comment on them though to say how thorough can your job have been done. How did you feel about the way that you were cross examined by the prosecution at the trial? What do you mean? It was quite belligerent 
it comes across in the transcript? I mean, how did it feel to be questioned in that way in a room full of people yeah. by the prosecution? I didn't like it. It was Rob's owner that uh, was asking me the questions. I didn't like him. I didn't like him much at all. He was very, as you say, belligerent. It really was. It was uncomfortable. I didn't like I didn't like that uh, part at all. You testified under Zonan's questioning that you actually continued to share a bed with Michael until you were 19, mm. which I think actually was a bit of a shock to a lot of people because of this narrative that had been built up about befriending boys and then just dumping them mm. or replacing them. Mm. But did there ever come a time where you had a conversation with Michael or, or how did it, how did that stop happening? Um, did you just feel uncomfortable with it or it didn't it didn't it's it's not that it stopped and to share a bed is is a little bit weird to say as well it's not that it's not like the way that it's said it it, it just really it's really weird to me it, it it's just as i said it's not something that i that i concentrate on because it was just sleeping you just go to sleep and that's it so it's it's not there was no all right, this is it. This is we're stopping this. This has to stop now. There was nothing like that at all. We're not going to go forward with this. There was never a conversation like that. It just would have happened. To, and so to say that it's not something that there's no clear memory for me to where it stopped. And it really actually didn't. From um, nineteen to to twenty three was oh didn't go over there that much between those time frames. And so it's not like we had that conversation where nothing happened. It just sort of just didn't happen i can't explain why it didn't it just didn't but afterwards it did it um did if i if i'm tired and i'm poor and i need to sleep i'm sleeping and there's a bed there i'm sleeping in it now there was a an exchange between you and zonan hmm. mr zonan the prosecution sort of tried to insinuate that you were unable to be honest with yourself about things that Michael Jackson might have done to you out of personal shame. So I'm just going to read you the question mm. and the answer. Mm. So Zonan asks you, Mr. Barnes, do you consider it disgraceful to have been molested? And you replied, absolutely. Yeah, that's actually something that's actually something that I wanted to, um, I was thinking about that before because uh, someone has, has brought that up because they objected after that and i remember that actually clearly well i guess yeah i didn't understand i thought he was asking a different question i thought he was asking is it bad for a child to be molested is it bad for something to, for, to happen to a child rather than being the victim of it yeah so the next day your sister carly was on the stand yeah and she was questioned by Gordon Alkenkloss, one of the other prosecutors. Yeah. And so the exchange between Mr. Alkenkloss and Carly went as follows. Do you know if your brother thinks it's a disgrace to be a victim of child molestation? Yeah. Of course he would. I would too. Yeah. So if he had to admit that, it would be disgraceful, wouldn't it? Well, no, it's a disgrace that it would happen to a child, not a disgrace to admit that it happened. So Carly's a disgrace that it has happened, right? So Carly did that same thing. Yeah, so yeah. but I just want to clarify what you actually meant by that statement because it has been 
used since then to try to suggest that you were... Absolutely. I hate that. And I apologize if anyone has been offended by that. That's not my intention at all. My position is, is that it's not, it's never, ever, ever, ever bad to be a victim. The victim should never be blamed. There is no fault at all um, should be placed on the victim. It's the perpetrator that should always have the blame. And it's bad for it to have happened. You're not a bad person for it to have happened to you. Yes. And so essentially what you you seem to be saying is that if anything ever had happened to you, you would not have any problem with saying that it had happened. Absolutely not. I would never be ashamed to be a victim. I would never be ashamed to be a victim. It doesn't matter who it was. I'm not ashamed to be to to being a victim of anything. So I'd have absolutely. My position would be that I would want the person that, if something had happened to me, I would make sure that that person is punished. I would absolutely do everything in my power to make sure that that person was punished. There's something else from the testimony that I just want to give you the opportunity to clarify as well, because it too has become part of the sort of Michael Jackson folklore, Hmm. which is that uh, when Carly was on the stand, your sister, it caused quite a stir because she testified that during one two-year period, Hmm. she estimated that you and Michael had slept in the same room together for approximately 365 days. And so basically on the stand, she did some crude mathematics and estimated Mm -hmm. that your family had been with Michael roughly six months of the year for two years in a row. Mm -hmm. And therefore she believed Mm -hmm. that you and Michael had shared a room for 365 days, which was quoted Mm -hmm. endlessly and is still quoted today. Mm -hmm. Do you believe it is actually true that you and Michael shared a room for 365 days in two years? I would say that I I definitely, definitely for the most part would stay with him. Definitely 100% for the most part, not 100% of the time, but for the most part, I would stay with him. Not a question about it. So whether that is 365 days in the two-year period, because that's how much time we spent there, then I would say that's a fair estimate. And again, it's not something, it's just something that I know. I don't recall every single time that we did because it was just, it was just the sleeping arrangements. It was just the sleep. Now you actually stayed at Neverland during the trial. How did Michael appear to be faring physically and mentally at that point? He was, um, he was definitely a different person because he was, you could tell he was going through it. You could really tell he was going through it. That's when I would probably say that he was frail. There's a story in Leaving Neverland about a dinner. It's a story that Wade Robson and... I think possibly his sister tell Mm. in the TV show where um, they say that it was, everybody was sitting around the table having dinner Mm -hmm. and Paris was trying to get Michael's attention. And he appeared to be basically mentally not there, just completely checked out. And Wade Robson cites that dinner as having strengthened his resolve to testify Mm. in Michael's defense. Mm. But you went public on Twitter Mm. and you said that actually your memory accorded with Taj Mm -hmm. that that dinner had actually occurred after Mm -hmm. 
Wade Robson's testimony and not before it. Because mm-hmm. I remember when that one came out and a question and I asked mum and Carly if they remembered and they both said the same thing. So you remember it being after? Yeah, because I remember it was the next. Because you and Wade testified on the same day. Yeah, because we, the way that it went is that we went there one day when we were expecting, when the prosecution was expected to rest. They didn't rest that day. They rested the next day, which is when we went, or it might have been the end of that day. So we, we were called to testify the next day. And then the following day was when the rest of our family, so like his mum and his sister and my mum and my sister were called uh, as witnesses. And then the day after that, they left. And we had the dinner the night before they left. So it was after testifying. And that recollection, is it part, part of the reason you know you're remembering the same dinner, presumably, is because of that incident with Paris? Would that be fair to say? It's not the incident of Paris. Okay. Is what I would, is how I remember it. Because the way that the dining room was set up is that there's multiple tables. So because we were staying at the ranch the whole time, whereas they weren't. They were, I don't know where, where they were staying or what they were doing, but because we were there for the whole time, like we were having dinner with our bed all the time, so we decided that it would be um, fair for them to sit on the main table, and then um, Carly, me, and Taj, we were sitting on another table, but in the same room. So I wasn't at that table when this supposedly happened, but I was in the same room. But the way that I remember it is that it couldn't have been, it couldn't have been something to have happened for him to um, attribute his testimony to it because the dinner happened after the testimony. I remember having the dinner because the next day they were leaving. Okay, so in essence, the reason that you know that it's the same dinner is because you were staying there and you were having dinner in the dining room every day. Yeah. And that was the only day that the Robsons were there for dinner. Yes, correct. Right. I understand. I understand. Okay. Did you talk to Wade at at that time? Did he, did you have any conversations about having testified? Uh, Not really, because we weren't allowed to. Because the only time that I spoke to him was at, as I said, when we were waiting for the prosecution to rest. So we were holed up in the back, in a room somewhere in the back. But because, because we were there, there was eyes on us, so we weren't allowed to talk about what the goings on. So we just small talk about other stuff. What about after you had testified? I think that his sister and his mum were on the same day as us, but my parent, my mum and my sister were the next day because I went back to the courtroom for them, but just stayed in the back again. They were the only times that I really spoke to him. I never spoke to him at the ranch or any time after that. Okay. How long did you stay at the ranch then, around the trial? About three weeks in total. Were you there for three weeks before you testified and then you left? At what what point in the trial do you think you would have arrived and left? Were you gone by the verdict? Uh, yeah, definitely. Okay. I was back home. In the three weeks that you were there, did Michael seem to deteriorate or did he seem to be pretty steady? Uh, he was pretty steady. I didn't see him really deteriorate. He was just, as I said, real frail, and you could tell that he was going through it. So what, what's your memory of the verdict? Were you watching on TV? No, I was asleep at the time. My sister called me up. She woke me up, called uh, on the phone, 
and she um, was crying. And I was like, what's wrong? And she goes, it's up ahead. And I was like, oh, no, because I thought it was something bad. She's like, no. And it turns out they were happy tears. She said that he, he's been found not guilty. And so then I went and saw him and you turn on the TV straight away. Yeah, it was just such, it was like all this emotion poured out because it was just such a, such a relief. When did you next speak to Michael after the verdict? I think it was, again, I don't really recall because it's not, I don't have these, because it was such a frequent thing for me to do, it's not something that I paid attention to. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember it being too soon after, but not too far after. So it probably would have been a few months. Did you ever actually see him in person again after the trial? Yeah, I went to Bahrain 2006. Oh, wow. Okay. So tell us about that. How did Michael seem? He was, from having seen him going through it during the trial to seeing him then, he was a lot more like he used to be. He was um, definitely more upbeat. He was actually real positive about the future. Like he had, he said he was doing a lot of good things were happening. He was, I never really heard details of any business dealings or anything that he was planning or anything of doing, but he would always allude to stuff and say, you just watch Dudu, there's big things coming. So yeah, there was a lot of that happening. He was he was having heaps of meetings. Um, he was looking to buy out there as well, buy, buy a place out there. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really cool. Was it just you or was it you and your family in Bahrain? No, it was just, it was just me that time. It was actually because I was going through a little bit of something in my personal life and so i was um a little bit uh, unhappy at the time and um he um, always was calling and stuff um it was actually mom said to him that i was a little bit going through something so he flew me out there to um try and make things better how long were you there for about three weeks did it make things better yeah it did. of course it did <laughs> <laughs> how did that how did he help just um, as I said, with a skewed perspective—not skewed, but a, a different perspective on life—to see what all life has, what opportunities people have in life, to see how far people can go, and to to, to be part of that upper echelon of of being being the person that he is—it was just so life-giving. It was it was a real refreshing. I don't know what he. I'm on a different vibrational level or something. I don't know what it is, but there's it's that magnetic effect that I was talking about before. How everyone wanted to be around him 24 seven. It's just something that he gives off that just you can't be anything. You can't be anything but happy after being around him. Yeah, again, it's um, it's a, stands in stark contrast to the narrative which is peddled about Michael befriending kids and then basically disregarding them or replacing them or dumping them. Mm-hmm. The fact that even even as you were, how old would you have been by then? You but So you would have been in your mid-20s and you're going through something. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose it makes me wonder, there were people that did disappear from his life. Did you ever understand or hear about how and why certain people had actually ended up being pushed out of his circle you were kept around you you had a long lasting mm. friendship other people mm. clearly have been left with the impression that they they were cast out for some reason do you mm. have any impression as to whether maybe there was a reason that people have been cast out 
I'm not the type of person to, like I said, I'll live in the moment. Whatever's happening is happening. Whatever happens, happens. Someone's around, someone's not. It's not really my place or need to know why. It's not something that ever crossed my mind. I was just happy to be there always. always. So I don't. I really don't know what makes me so special that, that I would have been someone that, that, as you say, was kept in the inner circle while others were pushed out. I don't know why that is the case. I don't know why people were pushed out. My assumption would only be is I, I, I can only go off what my um, perspective or my experiences were, but I was never one to take advantage of the situation, let's just say. Like I, I would, we would go to toy stores and, and he would let, it, let me buy stuff, but it was never like, oh, I want this, I need this, can I have this, can I do this, can I meet this person, can I do this? And I never gave cause to for him to never trust me. So I guess that that's what it would be it would be more of a trust issue i can only see that as a reason why like he there's something that happened where he wasn't comfortable with the way that this person acted and this is just my assumptions only the way that this person actually acted or something they did or something they said or or whatever it would have to be that's the only thing that i could see that would have to be something like this that they would have lost his his um, trust or his belief in him or something. That's the only reason why I would see that he would shut someone out, if that is the case. What did his life seem to be like in Bahrain? Where was he? Was he living in a hotel or was he still at the uh, with the prince? No, he was in a house. Oh, okay. It's not really my position to ask whose house is this. It was a beautiful place, really high roofs. The ceilings are massive. The grounds are beautiful. It was, it was a nice place. And it's like in the middle of the desert. It's such a surreal area of the world you'll see just sand dunes but then these mansions with palm trees and green grass and like there was a pool there and it was it was really cool did he seem happy he did he did the kids were there as well it was really cool it was really cool how regularly would you say you were in touch with him in those final years after bahrain again it's not something that i recall the frequency of i just know because it's always it, it it just always has been. So um, I can't tell you the frequency between them, but it was definitely re- really regular. It's not like he I never spoke to him for years on end. It would have, the, the last time I spoke to him was a week before he passed. What do you remember speaking to him about on that occasion? We would always, around that time, we would always reminisce about things that we did, um, adventures we went on places we'd gone do you remember this time do you remember doing that remember when that happened yeah he was looking forward to doing the shows but i think that it was taking a lot out of him as well do you say that because he sounded tired or because he expressed any kind of concern about it not really he didn't really express any kind of concern but he definitely was tired he definitely was tired i think when i spoke to you previously you mentioned that actually you were supposed to be in london when the shows happened yeah i was supposed to be he told me he was going to fly me out to London. How did that conversation end? Do you remember it? The last time? Yeah. No, not really. It was just see, like it was just like any other normal conversation. I didn't know what was what was about to happen. So, how did you find out about Michael's passing? It happened when I was um, again. It was another thing when I was asleep because of the time difference over here. I was living at home at the time. Uh, maybe a little too past my prime to be living at home, but that's another story. Yeah, I was asleep. Mom came in my room. 
and because I had to call, I had a missed call from someone actually. Someone had called my because my mobile phone was on the bedside table next to me. Someone had called it, and I saw who it was, and I just um, ignored it because I was sleeping. And it was it, this person uh, was not someone who would be calling me at that time, usually. So that's why I was just like, oh, I'll I'll call call that person back later. And then went back to sleep, and then mum came in and told me, and then I didn't believe it. Turn on the TV, and I just, yeah, it was not a, it was a very sad day. How did you react immediately? I mean, I know a lot of people who actually just assumed, you know, that it was fake news. I mean, it had been reported by the media previously that Michael had passed away and it had been incorrect. Mm. I mean, what was your immediate reaction to the news? Did you believe it? No. But then when I was watching the TV, I did. Uh, it's, yeah, I just didn't want to believe it. That's really all I was going to add to that. Did you go out for the either of the funerals, either the Staples Center Memorial or the actual funeral? No, I didn't. The thing about the way that, and I guess it's one of the reasons getting back to why I was always around, was honestly, it's not just me, it's my whole family. We never pushed the point, never took advantage, never did anything like that. So our only real dealings, especially personally, my only real dealings, uh, like I was his friend and his friend only. So once he passed, there was no there was no real way for me to, um, because he, he was always the one which I'm extremely grateful for is he was, he paid for it. every time I went anywhere and anytime I did anything, he was always the one that would, that would pay for it because we don't have the means to do stuff like that. Of course, because we're just absolutely regular people. So when he passed, there was no real way for me to go over there to reach out to someone because I didn't know anyone's contacts. So there was no real way for me to go across there. And to tell you the honest truth, I'm not, I don't, I don't handle death real well, so I'm not sure how I would have gone if I had have gone. Is there any part of you that wishes you had gone? Yeah, absolutely. Like I haven't been back since since 2005 when we went for trial. I haven't been back to the states since. Uh, it's something that I definitely like. I would love to do, but I'm not sure if I want to either. At the same token, so there is a part of regret that I didn't. But like for me, it wouldn't have. My grief isn't isn't um, wouldn't have been any easier or anything if I had have gone over there. If you know what I'm, if, if if that makes sense. As part of preparing for this interview, I did go back over your Twitter history, and I noticed mm. that you do make a point every year of um, posting about you know the anniversary or posting mm. about Michael's birthday. You know. You leave little messages to him on Twitter. Would you say that you're still grieving? Yeah, absolutely. But it's the same thing. Like I still grieve my grandparents' death. It, he was he was really a member of the family. Has it made it more difficult to cope with the loss of Michael to see what has happened since he passed away in terms of the resurfacing? of the allegations and the particularly the fact that your name continually comes up, does that make it more difficult for you? Absolutely. 
that's not how I want to be associated with it. On May the 8th, 2013, I noticed this as I was going back through your Twitter. <laughs> okay, stalker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I prefer the term diligent researcher. Thorough. Yeah, but, um, I appreciate that, Charles. <laughs> I appreciate that. On the 8th of May, 2013, TMZ broke the news that Wade Robson was now claiming uh, he, mm. he had filed a suit for money saying mm. that Michael had um, abused him. Mm. And on the same day, you published a tweet and it said, I wish people would realize in mm. your last moments on this earth, mm-hmm. all of the money in the world will be of no comfort. Mm-hmm. My clear conscience will. Mm. I just want to get into with you briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are exceptionally clear that nothing ever happened between you and Michael. But mm-hmm. what is it that convinces you that nothing happened to anyone else either? I guess that is a brush statement for me to make. But my viewpoint on the matter is that I spent a great deal of time with him. Up until his passing, for most of my life, he was he was um, a part of my life. And my experiences within um, with him for that great amount of time for nothing to not only nothing to ever happen to me but for me to have not seen anything um, that would cause me concern to have happened to anyone else and no one had spoken to me and uh, like I've been around a, a, a lot of people around him and for no one to have, to have said anything to me not to say that anyone would but to, the reason I say this is that I have never had any perception that anything uh, bad was happening so for me to have been spending all this time, and I guess it is only the time that I was spending around, so I can only comment on that and then projecting it onto the onto the rest of his life, there's no way that I could see it happening, that him doing anything um, bad to anyone happening. So there's that viewpoint of it that I can't see him doing anything. But for me as well, to put my foot down and stamp it is, is more of a loyalty thing that for him to have these accusations about him, that's my friend that's having this happen too. Well, I suppose the other thing is that where the allegations, where there are allegations where Michael is concerned, there are also Mm. almost inextricably allegations of a pattern, of a pattern of Mm -hmm. grooming and of a pattern of abuse and certainly in the tv show leaving neverland they associate you mm-hmm. with that pattern so it is their case that there was a pattern and that you were part of that pattern and so i just want to put to you some of what is said about you in leaving neverland mm-hmm. because the people that made it never gave you the opportunity to comment on it so i thought maybe we should afford you that opportunity mm-hmm. so the first mention of you, you're not mentioned by name, mm. but you're shown in archive footage and photographs. So James Safechuck mm. is speaking. Did you notice how, sorry, sorry to cut you off there, did you notice how that there were montages, or not montages, but um, photos of other people around, but only my face is, is clear, everyone else's is blurred out, but sorry, continue. Yes. Um, so there's so James Safechuck is talking over footage and photographs of you and Michael. Yep. And he says, this is his verbatim quote, 
there was one particular boy who sort of entered and replaced me. And so I saw him grow closer and closer to that boy, and I was pushed out more and more. Mm. And that was really difficult to handle. One specific night that was really tough, it was at the Avenue of the Stars, you know, spending the night there, and the boy was there, and the boy would sleep in Michael's room, and then I would sleep downstairs on the sofa. It's like being cast out. And it was like a realization that, like, okay, I'm not number one. And I just wanted to go home. Michael's my like partner, and then he's gone. So all this stuff about the particular boy who replaced me and is now sleeping in Michael's room, and I'm downstairs on the sofa. This is, I mean, this is all being said over footage and photographs of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, did, was it your impression that you were replacing anybody? Not at all. Not at all. When he says Avenue of the Stars, would that be referring to the um, the hideout? I would assume so. Did the hideout have an upstairs and a downstairs? Uh, yeah, it was three levels. The garage was down the bottom. Middle level was like a lounge room and kitchen. And then upstairs was a games room again and bedroom. Oh, I see, I see. I mean, it would be my reading, just reading through this, there was a particular boy who entered and replaced me I saw him grow closer and closer and I was pushed out. The boy was there and the boy would sleep in Michael's room. Michael's my partner and then he's gone. I mean, that seems to be a very clear inference that you are Michael's romantic partner, which is something that you would expect somebody to give you a right of reply about if they're going to broadcast it on television all over the world. But mm-hmm. they didn't. Nobody asked you to uh, to comment on that. Mm-hmm. What would you have said if they had asked you to comment on that? Yeah, it's um, absurd. I can't see how that would have taken place. It completely it doesn't make sense to me at all. It didn't happen, and it doesn't make sense to me um, that that any aspect of our friendship could be described as such. So the show continues. Wade Robson's mother, Joy Robson, Mm. says, During the Dangerous Tour, when Michael took Brett Barnes on the tour with him, Mm. Wade had asked to go on the tour, and Michael had told him no, he couldn't go because he wasn't allowed to take children on this tour. Mm. And then he saw Brett Barnes with him on television. Mm. And then it cuts to Wade, and he says, I don't think he liked to mix us. I mean, he liked to keep these relationships separate. Mm. I remember it being particularly hard with Brett because I found out and I knew that he was Australian. Oh, it's a new Australian boy as well, like feeling really replaced. Is it true that Michael kept kids separately from one another? No, I was never, like I said, I was never locked away. There was never anything I've spent time with. As I said, I spent time with Jordy, spent time, only a little bit of time with Wade. There's been, his cousins have been around, other friends have been around. There's always been people around. Macaulay Colkin also, I think you testified in 2005 that he actually stayed in the room yeah. with you and Michael on occasion. I think so. He was at the ranch one time. This bit where Wade says, he found out that you were Australian and, and that Michael had replaced him with a new Australian boy. I mean, mm. it kind of is insinuating a gay, there's some kind of, because Wade is alleging that he was abused. 
when he says mm. that he's been replaced with a new boy that is sort of alleging that you must have been abused as well. Mm-hmm. That's how I take it. So that's your interpretation. I think that's a reasonable person's interpretation. So mm. had Leaving Neverland's producers, makers bothered to give you any sort of right of reply, what would you have said? That I absolutely refuted. It's not, I, I, again, I don't understand this term replacement because my understanding of, of being friends with someone is that you're friends with that person. There's nobody that's going to take your place. You're not taking the place of anybody else. It's a friendship. I can't fathom the idea because that someone was being replaced because I was never replaced from what that statement is saying. Like I said, my friendship continue would still be continuing to this day. So I can't, I don't understand the replacement part of things. There, there was no replacement. But it's reiterated again by Wade's mother, Joy. She says, after a while, I realized there was a pattern. Every 12 months, there was a new boy in his life. Mm. But you're saying that there, is, there was no such pattern. Not in my experience. There was no disruption to our friendship throughout the entire span of it. There was none. I was never left out in the cold. There was, there was, there was nothing in our friendship for the whole time where I ever felt like I was being replaced. I ever felt slighted by him. And maybe it's just my perspective that I was happy to be there. I don't know, but that's never anything that I felt from um, his side of things that I was ever, that I wasn't his friend anymore. I wasn't a favorite of his. There, there was n- never anything like that. I think that what's important about this is that they are pointing to you as evidence of the pattern. So there is, to some extent, a pattern in the sense that you were all the children of families who actively sought out Michael Jackson because you were fans, and you all at some point became a bit like surrogate families and you all were invited to neverland or to participate in music videos or go on tour or whatever Mm -hmm. and you all ended up staying with him in his room at some point and so their contention is that this is a grooming pattern which is extremely similar Mm. Um, and so what they are saying is if we say we were abused, then Brett must have been abused. That seems to be what they're saying because it's the, the same pattern. Which I guess is the counter to what is the exact opposite of what I, of it's the same thing, but from the different perspective. Exactly. On my side of things. Yes. It never happened to me. So it, it couldn't have happened to anyone else. Yes. So that's what I wanted to put to you really is the idea if, if they are pointing to you and saying you are mm. proof of the pattern, mm. then you feel it's reasonable for you to say, well, actually, nothing happened to me. And therefore, I feel it's reasonable for me to believe that probably nothing happened to you. That's essentially where you're coming from. That's my viewpoint, yes. And But like I said, I, can't, I can only comment on what my perspective and what I've experienced. I can't comment on what happened when I wasn't there, but I can make a reasonable judgment in my opinion. Yes. So, and your opinion, I take it, is that you don't believe that Michael ever did abuse any children. I couldn't. I can never. I could never see him doing anything bad to another human being, let alone a child. 
Now, you are one of the consequences of leaving Neverland and the insinuations that it made Mm. is that you are subjected on basically a daily basis Mm. to quite intense and abusive trolling, Mm. often by a a small and very devoted group of trolls who just completely your mates aren't they yeah (laughs) who just respawn (laughs) under a new name every now and then usually something to do with a cat but what they what the allegation which is leveled at you publicly on social media Mm. every day Mm. pretty much or certainly every week and nearly every day Mm. is that you must have been abused and you are lying about that and that's deplorable because you are undermining people like Wade and James. So I just want to, I mean, would you agree that if you have been. Let me just say, if that, if that is the absolute, if that is the case, if, I, if something had happened to me, but I'm keeping quiet about it in order to protect some dead person, and excuse me for being so blunt, but. To, in order to protect some dead person that had hurt me, but also at the detriment of other people's of other people's health and well being, so for it to have happened to me to be keep quiet and to let it go on and happen to someone else as well, what type of monster would I be? What type of monster would I be? That was my next question. So you would agree that if something had happened to you and you were lying about it and thus undermining genuine victims, that would that would be deplorable behavior. Absolutely. 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 And is that what you're doing? Of course not. I'm going to quote again briefly from this letter that your lawyer, Alan Grodsky, wrote to HBO. Because it's worth mentioning that whilst nobody who worked on Leaving Neverland bothered to give you any sort of right of reply, Mm. they did put for a a couple of seconds at the very end of the show Mm -hmm. uh, some text that said that you deny Mm -hmm. any inappropriate behavior. So the quote from your letter is from the, the lawyer's letter is the film for seconds displays a Chiron saying that Mr. Barnes denies Mr. Jackson did anything inappropriate. No Chiron is going to cure such a despicable allegation. Mm -hmm. The film leaves viewers with the false impression that Mr. Barnes was in fact molested by Mr. Jackson and that Mr. Barnes is simply in denial. Mm. Are you in denial? Absolutely not. When this letter was sent to HBO, did you ever get a reply? Um, we did, but it was just saying that, no, we're not going to do it. We don't see why we should. There's no reason for us. We don't believe that we should have to take it out. That's essentially what the, the reply was. Yes. Yeah, so you were saying essentially because you'd been given no right of reply, you didn't want your image in it and you didn't want the allegations about you. No. My personal viewpoint on, on is it is that you're throwing that these people were were throwing me into this, that were using my name, they were using my likeness, and as I said before, they were showing in these pictures there was there was a bunch of pictures there, and they blurred out every single body else except they left mine there. My name and likeness should did not need to be. It would not have detracted from 
from the movie. It wouldn't have changed anything that that was happening from the movie. It didn't add anything to the movie that that would be anything special. It only added it only added as a as a way to help further sell the story that they're selling. But for them to take it out wouldn't have diminished that fact. It wouldn't have been a detriment to the movie if they had removed my likeness. So as as people, I don't understand why someone would say, you know what, maybe we've gone a little bit too far. We don't need to have, we don't need to tell, say the stories, as you said, uh, how the story was said about a boy was being replaced. Continue with that line of, of talking, allude to the fact that there was no need for me to have my face or my name being mentioned in it would not have detracted at all. So for someone to say, you know what, we ain't doing it, we're not doing it, we don't care. It's not affecting us. They're forgetting that these are real people. These are real people that are being talked about. This isn't just some movie that you're watching. These are real people that, you, that you're talking about and throwing into this with no response. Well, not only are you real people, but according to their own TV show, you are a victim. That's essentially what they're saying. Mm. They're saying mm-hmm. you are a victim, right? So that raises a whole new set of ethical questions about the idea of naming you mm-hmm. and showing your image and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's almost like they want to have their cake and eat it. Mm-hmm. They want to present you as a victim, but treat you as if you're some sort of criminal. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how I feel. You've been, and by the way, it's worth mentioning again that the consequence of this is that you have, for the last three years, been subjected on pretty much a daily basis to mm-hmm. extremely abusive and defamatory trolling on the internet. Mm-hmm. People accusing you of being a paedophile, enabler mm-hmm. of being a paedophile, apologist mm-hmm. of being a paedophile, sympathizer mm-hmm. of uh, being a paedophile better that's published on the internet Mm -hmm. that's that you know people google you that comes up Mm -hmm. and also it resulted in a lot of media intrusion Mm -hmm. something else that you were very critical about in addition to the show itself was the way the media just picked up the show and ran with it Mm -hmm. and didn't really question or or research or investigate Mm -hmm. it in any way you tweeted on january the 30th 2019 Not only do we have to deal with these lies, but we've also got to deal with people perpetuating these lies. Mm -hmm. The fact that they fail to do the small amount of research it takes to prove these are lies Mm -hmm. by choice or not makes it even worse. Mm -hmm. What has been your experience of that? You spoke earlier about the media showing up on your doorstep, Mm -hmm. but what has been your experience beyond that of the media since Leaving Neverland was released? What what do you mean by that? Is it the media? Is it my involvement with the media, or is it what I've noticed the media been saying? What I mean is beyond them actually physically showing up on your doorstep, mm, mm. there is another sphere of media coverage, which is people that just write about you mm-hmm. without showing up on your doorstep. You know, there, yeah. there was millions of uh, maybe not millions but mm. you know many 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 thousands of articles written about leaving neverland just rehashing from other articles yeah so yeah. i mean how frequently would you say somebody writes an article about michael jackson that mentions you 
and actually gives you a right of reply? None. No one ever has. How often would you say somebody writes an article about Michael Jackson that mentions you and is inaccurate? Almost all of them, I'd say. I could pro- I could comfortably say all of them. And how does that make you feel? It, it angers me. Again, it's it's real people, that, and that's what people, these people, but also the the consumers, fail to realize is that that we're real people that are affected by this. Imagine if it was you. Imagine if it was your brother. Imagine if it was your father. Imagine if it was your cousin. Imagine if it was your friend going through all this. These are these these I have. I've got a sister, I've got parents, I've got friends, I've got cousins. It's happened. It's what I'm saying. Put your, put your, put yourself in every one of these people's shoes. See what we have to deal with. I'm a real person. This is my association with him. Every time that you, that you, and I guess that might be a failure on my part to shy away from the public eye and the public scrutiny that I don't get to have my viewpoint, my, my um, perspective on things said so that these are the only chances that you um see of me but it's still it shouldn't be on me to have to correct these things it should be on the person making these accusations to do their due diligence to have something to back it up when you like i said the fans have been amazing to put together everything to to counteract the movie but also in in anything that comes up in general the amount of the amount of detail and, and um investigation that they do is and they put the information on a silver platter. Here, here, just please have a, have a look at this. Have a, this is all you need. Just have a look at this. Just have have one look at an opposing view rather than seeing a movie and all the all the buzz around a movie. And that's that's what you're taking. That's what you're taking um, as gospel without any due diligence. And that's why I have a problem. And that's something that I want to ask you, Charles, being a being a um, member of the uh, journalistic field, like what has happened? Is it something that's drastically changed where where we've come into the age of needing information at the minute, but also having the ability to monetize um, real easy over the internet that you no longer have to have to have investigative journalists where to do the research. All you need to do is just one person needs to write an article about something doesn't even have to be true. And then everyone else gets to cite that article and say, and then spread it as gospel. Like where is there, why are journalists so lazy nowadays that they aren't doing any due diligence? Is it because they have to get articles out as quick as possible because the, the, the money needs to keep coming in? Is it like what, what has happened that this, that this is life now? Well, I think it is a broad theme that the media has actually lost a lot of resources. So the internet has essentially destroyed the business model for the media because people just get stuff for free on the internet instead of paying for it. Mm. And so journalists essentially are forced to do a lot more work than they would have been forced to do 30 years ago. Mm. It leaves them with almost no time to actually diligently research anything because if they do their jobs properly, then they get told off for not producing enough stories. Mm. But that being said, it has been the case ever since at least the 1980s that the media industry has just catastrophically failed to do its job properly where Michael Jackson is concerned anyway. And is and the problem with that is I agree with you, and but you are labelled as being a tinfoil 
um, hat wearing person to think that it's that you're believing in a conspiracy when it to me at least it's blatantly obvious that it isn't a conspiracy theory that this is actively happening i'm not a i'm not a nut job thinking that the world's just out to get this this person because they actively are is it the fact that there's a torrent of the negative information like a, a tsunami of information saying that all the same thing it's just different headlines different publications but it's all saying the exact same thing that people uh, that the consumers are just have to go with it because it's so much of of a large voice repeating the same thing. Well, the interesting thing about the Michael Jackson phenomenon, I think, is that the consumers, the media is not really in step with the consumers. So that's the feeling I get too. Yeah, it's almost like they're working overtime to try and push this negative on the consumer, but the consumers are just not buying it. I remember. I've told this story on the MJ cast before watching the um, the Twitter for mm. Leaving Neverland. I didn't watch Leaving Neverland as it went out. I watched mm. it later. Mm. But I was watching the hashtag on Twitter when it mm. when it was broadcast in the UK. I was astounded by the volume of people who were posting messages about how they didn't believe it. Mm. And not I'm not just talking about people with Michael Jackson as their Twitter picture. You know, I'm talking about mm. general members of the public. Mm. One of them was um, Denise Ferguson, who is the mother of James Bolger, one of the most prominent yep. child abuse campaigners yep. in the UK. And she yep. was tweeting about how it was a bunch of bull. Or she, you know, said words to that effect. I don't mm. think she said a bunch of bull. I think she said uh, something like, yeah, I, "I can't believe people are buying this," or something like that. But mm. so actually, it's it is almost like it's more agenda driven than consumer driven mm. because yeah. there does seem to be a chasm between the media's attitude on this issue and the public's attitude. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could speculate all day as to what the driver is, but it's, you know, it feels like. Feels like that it's an active machine specifically targeted uh, against him. I mean, you had an incident even just a couple of weeks ago, I think, with TMZ, where they wrote a story yeah. and they published a picture of you and yeah. wrongly labeled it as Jordan Chandler or something. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And you had to message them over and over and over again to get it fixed. I'm actually surprised they did it. Yeah, I am actually. Over. And that's so that's another well, that's another thing to point out as well that it's the type of journalistic integrity. So they're just putting up a photo without even doing the due diligence to find out who is in this photo when it's easily able to be found who is in this photo. So I can't understand how someone, there's no accountability that these people are still making the mistakes, but yet they're still free to free to go on. Because I know it might work if I was to make these type of mistakes and continually making these type of mistakes, I wouldn't be in the job long. But these aspects are forgotten about or looked over just because the sheer volume of articles that have to be put out. Is this is this going back to the fact that they that journalists do need to just push out article after article after article? Well, that certainly is a that is a phenomenon in the media industry today. Certainly, reporters, uh, particularly on the digital desks at national newspapers, are expected to churn out about ten stories a day or something, which means mm-hmm. they have about. 40 minutes to work on a story and if you're managing to fact check everything and contact everybody who needs a right of reply in 40 minutes then you're like 
you know, your Superman, basically, that it's just not possible to do the job properly in, in the time that you're given with the, the workload that you're given now at national newspapers. But I would add again, the caveat that where Michael Jackson is concerned, they have never done the job properly. Yes, I agree. So, you know, it's almost like part of it is the defamation issue. So Michael is dead. And they just go, oh, well, he's dead, so who cares? He mm -hmm. can't sue us. We can't get in trouble. Mm -hmm. But there's also just an antipathy, which I think is residual. So you have to remember that when Michael rose to superstardom, the world was a very different place and racism was very overt still. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were only 20 years after segregation had ended mm -hmm. and – a lot of the people that were populating those newsrooms would have been there since before segregation had ended. Yeah, and there yeah. were a lot of, a lot of attitudes in those newsrooms. There was a lot of racism, a lot of um, homophobia because Michael did receive a lot of homophobic abuse mm -hmm. because he wore eyeliner or, you know, had his hair long or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that, it's a cultural thing. I had a similar thing where I used to work for a newspaper, which had an extremely antagonistic relationship with a, a police force. Mm. And it all emanated from something that had happened about 20 years earlier. And mm. there was nobody who worked in the press office of that police force who had actually worked there at the time that this mm. incident had happened. But it, it became a cultural thing where every time somebody joined that press office, they were told, don't do any favors for that newspaper, mm. obstruct them at every opportunity mm. because we hate them. Mm. So it's almost like the, there was a hatred of Michael Jackson that began from something which was very ugly. And it's almost like it's being perpetuated now by people that don't really know where it even started. That's, mm. a, that's my impression. Mm. Anyway, I don't want to. I don't want this to turn into me just, you know, <laughs> postulating on the state of the media. It's insightful, though. It's insightful. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get back to. Um, well, I suppose I should ask you at this point, given what we're talking about. I mean, we have necessarily spent a lot of this interview talking about persistent allegations that mm. have been made about the nature of your relationship mm. with Michael. And it is unfortunate that those allegations are made with sufficient frequency and, and force that it's necessary to put so many things to you to see whether you would like to address them. But mm. does the fact that there is this sort of air of negativity, this, you know, the, this, these allegations hover in the air, mm. does it actually taint in any way your memories of Michael? No, not at all. I don't let these stories change my viewpoint at all. As I said, I can only comment on my experiences, and so I project that onto onto the experiences of other people. So I can't see it happening at, at any point across the board. I can't look at my experiences in any negative light because I can't believe that any any negative thing happened in any any aspect of my experience or anybody else's experiences that were put in the same uh, shoes, I guess, as I was. I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions, then we'll wrap up. Yeah, cool. With that in mind, given all that you've been accused of and are constantly accused of, I'm just going to turn back to your tweet from 2013. Mm. I wish people would realize in your last moments on this earth, mm. all the money in the world will be of no comfort. 
my clear conscience will. Mm. Just for the record, you've not been paid for this interview. No. Uh, can you confirm that? Absolutely. And as you reflect on all the answers you've given, mm. is your conscience clear? Absolutely. There's nothing that I have lied about in this conversation. Everything that I've spoken about has been the truth. So I, my conscience is absolutely clear. And, and what will be interesting is to see, and I know and it's not lost to me how having this chat with you, Charles, has been, I've been really um, conflicted about doing it because on the one hand, it's something that I feel needs to be said to help, help see a bigger picture of the man, um, of who he was, to see another inside of it, just to know what you've seen or heard. Um, especially the negative side of things but also like on the other hand it's it's he really was my best friend and i feel the same um way i feel that he felt the same way about me not necessarily above everyone else but the fact that i was a really really close friend with him so we had that trust and so for me to another reason why i like to that i haven't spoken about it is because of that trust on some aspect or on some level of it i feel like even having this chat with you is that i am betraying that trust a little bit so i've been real conflicted in in giving this interview and like i said as well is that i believe that this platform is one that i can in turn trust and in no way shape or form do i believe that you would only highlight the positivity like if something bad was to there's if there was something that was bad there is there's no doubt in my mind that that you wouldn't sweep it under the rug or do anything to do that. So it's a truthful platform, but it's one that's not going to twist my words. That's not going to put any spin on the conversation because there is no spin to be spun, I guess is what I'm saying. So having this conversation with you, being truthful about it has definitely, it's a very long-winded way of me saying has, has my conscience is still clear enough. I think I was trying to be a little bit um, poetic with <laughs> With writing, with writing that, that tweet sometimes I think I'm a little bit uh, more grandiose than I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, I, I appreciate everything you've just said there and, and that's very kind of you, so thank you. And we're, you know, we're pleased that you were amazed, firstly shocked, but very pleased that you agreed to talk to you us. Got, you got um, me on a really good day. <laughs> <laughs> there's one final question that the... Yeah. MJ Cast asks to all special episode guests. And that question is, how do you think Michael Jackson should be remembered? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. Because he, in well, again, in my opinion, he's the greatest entertainer, definitely within my lifetime the natural ability, but the hard work as well that he put into everything and every aspect of it. Like his whole thing about his music, his shows, every, every artistic endeavor that he, um, that poured out from him was not for him. And it was essentially the same thing going throughout his life. It was not for him. Nothing ever was for him. It was for everybody else. Like to take a family from the outer suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, around the world and show them experiences that no one in their lifetime experiences, not for his, it, it, it did not matter to him whether we were there or not. It was all for us to experience and to, to be so selfless about that. He was not just the greatest entertainer in the world. And it, he didn't, didn't just put on these extravagant shows 
and he wasn't just a perfectionist. It was he wasn't just that. He did that for everybody else, for everyone, and it's not just his fans that he did it for, which he was massively appreciative for, but it's just for everybody. Young, old, man, woman, everybody to just to just put a little bit of magic in, in their lives. So he was a, a, a great humanitarian. He was a, a funny, funny, funny person. He was hilarious. It was so good to hear him laugh. We would make him laugh real hard. He was he really was my brother. And I, um yeah, I have nothing but praises for the man. Thank you very much and for taking the time. That that concludes that concludes the interview, Brett. So you can breathe a sigh of relief. And I, <laughs> there's been some um, some pretty pretty full on questions in there. So sorry about that. But no, I no, I no. just think it's important that it's taking it's taking me on a ride for sure. So Brett, if people want to engage with you on Twitter, mm-hmm. what is your Twitter account? I am Brett Barnes. So at I am Brett Barnes. Yeah. And it really is you. It really, it really is me. And if anybody wishes to engage with the MJ cast on social media, then the show is on Twitter at the MJ cast. It's on Instagram at the MJ cast. It's on Facebook as the MJ cast, or you can email us at the MJ cast at iCloud.com. See you next time. Thank you, Brett. Thank you.